Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Karen Pugliese. Hello, Jesse Brown. Former news boss at APTN, Ryerson journalism instructor. Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Good to have you. (laughs) Good to be here. Today, it's Canada Day. And if just saying that makes listeners uncomfortable... Uh, good. That That is the correct response. And newsflash, it is really fucking hot outside. We will read the headlines from Obvious Shit Daily and tell you what we have learned. It's good to have you here. It's good to be here. This episode is brought to everyone by Patrick Burns, Jay DeSanti, Joseph Pillipil, Mika Anshin, Melanie Craig, Clay Underhill Mishner, Greg West, and Miranda. Hi, my name's Miranda, and I live in Calgary, Alberta. I'm a research assistant, and I support Canada Land um, because the absence of public relations languaging and how thoughtfully and carefully they choose to frame stories, and especially, I think, the absence of softening language, or some call it corporate speak, is really done in a very respectful and appropriate way. To celebrate or to mourn and reflect. If you've been online recently, you may have seen the hashtag Cancel Canada Day. Canada Day calls are growing countrywide to forgo the celebrations altogether. Near the Cowess's First Nation, the city of Melville, Saskatchewan, has decided to cancel its usual Canada Day parade and fireworks display this year as well. I can't stay silent when people want to cancel Canada Day. 
That's just a taste of it, Karen. Uh, the headlines, it's been a bit relentless. Um, blog TO, CN Tower won't be doing a light show on Canada Day this year. I didn't know that they did one. Okay. Uh, Calgary Mayor says that Canada Day fireworks will go ahead, but to honor residential school children. Uh Okay. The Collingwood Today headline, the Business Association cancels Canada Day celebrations in Collingwood. On and on about whether or not we should be canceling Canada Day. What do you make of this focus? I feel complicated about this. I I need to say that, first of all, I don't have any residential school survivors directly in my family that I know of. My mom didn't go to residential school and she told me my grandfather didn't, um, but I never really knew my grandfather. So... Um, I'm not sure. Having said that, I'm really taking my cue from uh, the survivors and people in the communities. And some of them are saying that they want to see candidate canceled and others have this really warm perspective of just think about us on Canada Day. I I think what's interesting to me is that for all the years since 2015, where the TRC report has been out, there really hasn't been a lot of reaction from Canadians. It was kind of like, uh, well, we kind of knew that residential schools were bad and sort of a let's move on. And somehow, all of a sudden, this is just maybe the right time or the right place, or it was the right moment when we're already talking about racial issues and what it means to be a racialized person in Canada, that these children's graves are discovered and Canadians are reflecting on that. I mean, it's interesting to me to hear Canadians writing about how they don't feel like celebrating Canada Day. The flip side of that is that, you know, people are saying, well, Canada's a great country. And for many people it has been, but it hasn't been for Indigenous people. And I think when Indigenous people are asking for the slowing down of ceremonies or no ceremonies is just to have that reflection this one time. You know what, Jesse? I'm just going to say I am very curious to hear what you have to say. I feel like survivors and Indigenous people have been doing a lot of heavy lifting. I'm very interested in what non-Indigenous people have to say. I think that it comes after, but I do think that there's a place for it, kind of for the reasons you're saying, essentially. It's been awful, right? Having these conversations, thinking about Canada in this new way, having conversations with my kids about mass graves. It's been really, really grim and really difficult. And my understanding of what this moment asks of everyone is like, yeah, you're getting a little taste of what it's like to have no choice but to live in that history. So I think that the responsibility of this moment is to talk about it and deal with it. Like the first thing I want to say is like, of course Canada Day should be canceled. You don't need to be an activist to know that. Like, you just need to be a person. I mean, you don't throw fireworks. You don't throw a party when children's graves have just been discovered. It's basic. But I almost, like, hesitate to even engage with this should we or shouldn't we cancel Canada Day because, more importantly, who the fuck cares? We were having a much better conversation a couple of weeks ago. We were asking different questions a couple of weeks ago. In, in the wake of, of these revelations, which are not revelations, as you point out. Like, we knew this since the Truth and Reconciliation report came out. We knew 4,000 was the number given. But, yeah, something about the way news works of, like, actually making the discovery of over 1,000 remains of children 
you know, you, you put that in an international headline next to Canada and it's different than something in a report. Something about that gets through. And so the questions prior to this Canada Day debate were, what does it mean that this country that we thought we knew in a certain way spent 100 years burying thousands of indigenous children in unmarked graves? What does that actually mean? It's been going on until very recently. How could it have happened? Who's to blame? And how can we just go on living with like statues of the perpetrators looming above us as we walk down the street? And in what ways is it still happening? Like, what are we is the question that this actually demands that we ask. And instead, Post Media actually ran a fucking poll, like mass grave of children discovered, and they call up 1,500 Canadians and they say, Canada's not perfect, but does that mean that we should cancel Canada Day? And they ask the question, is our history not worth celebrating? Like, that's ghoulish behavior. You don't act that way, given these circumstances. But as a media critic, I'll say one thing. There is no more manufactured news story than a poll. You run a poll, and then you report on the results of the poll that you ran and call it a news story. And I also feel like, are we also going to perpetuate this fiction that we give a shit about Canada Day otherwise? Like, that would have been a better poll, Karen. Like, <laughs> hey, Canadians, like, independent of the residential school thing, how many fucks do you give about Canada Day? Like, on a scale of one to ten fucks. So I reject the premise of this. Like, I, I feel like it's just too convenient because now we're having this debate about whether Canada Day should be canceled or not. And that is a very convenient news story because however it plays out, that news story is done on July 2nd. And this shit is not done. We're going to keep finding more graves, and it shouldn't be done. Everything about the way that this debate has been warped, and I, I don't think it's coming from the public. I don't think the public was like, wow, these discoveries of these, of these mass graves really makes me wonder about Canada Day. You know, just before I came on the show, I was like five minutes late showing up, and I'm putting a series in the National Observer this week, so the first piece just went out. And I think it was probably one of the mildest things that you could say about this whole discussion. And I almost immediately got an email from an American professor in the US, first of all, explaining journalism to me. And uh, <laughs> after he was finished doing that, his background's not in journalism, but he wanted to uh, white mansplain that to me. After he was done, he actually said, do the math. It's only seven kids per year. Holy shit. Holy shit. <laughs> like I was literally shaking. You know, I, Canada, I think, is going through the, I think there's seven stages of grief now, but I remember when there were five stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Maybe that's what we're actually seeing play out. I mean, people don't like to deal with these bad feelings, right? And I've always said most of the people living today are not responsible for this. You didn't do it, Jesse. I didn't do it. But we're living with the shared history and the impact of what happened. And so if somebody's holding a mirror up to Canada and you're looking in it and you're saying, oh, my God, I, I don't like what I'm seeing. The question is what you're going to do about it. But you have to know that truth. You have to both be admitting that something happened in the first place. And I'm done with residential school deniers. I'm just done with it. It's an ugly business, but it's, it's necessary for these obfuscations, these arguments to finally be put into their right light and die. Like the argument, well, we're not perfect, but no country on earth is perfect. It's like, what are you talking about? You can't file this under ancient history 
this is a, every bit as ghoulish and grim as it appears to be. And so it's always been a bad look to read this kind of thing. But for us reflexively to go to this place again and for me to read, you know, here's like one of the editorials that uh, the Toronto Sun ran from like they're running from Colonel Gilbert Taylor, the immediate past president of the Royal Canadian Military Institute. Canada Day brings us together. Cancel culture tears us apart. Once again this year, I will proudly fly the flag of my country from the front porch for all my neighbors to see. And woe betide the person who dares to set their hand against it. What the what the (laughs) fuck? There's many editorials like that that have been running not just in The Sun, which are the worst, but in The Post as well and other post media papers, which are government subsidized papers. And they keep repeating the refrain. Well, we're not perfect, but. And they get very close to actually saying, you know, the phrase, this is how we describe an argument like that. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But they're holding back from actually using that phrase because we actually did throw the children out. And I'm sorry for being so crude about this, but these are just words. Like we're talking about thousands of children. It's okay to linger in that and think about that until a little bit past Canada Day even. I don't understand how people can't be changed by this. You know, like I said, I have no residential school survivors immediately in my family that I know of. But, you know, I started looking into this when I was in university and I wrote an essay on residential schools. And I said, I'm never going to touch the topic again because it just left me too, too upset. It was it was too much. And then, of course, I go to work for APTN and I spend the next six years covering residential school survivors. And just listening to those stories, I've never been right in my mind again since. I haven't. I don't show it a lot. And I don't know why I always tell you these things, Jesse Brown, but I do. You know, I will be watching a video that has like happy little kids in it and something will just trigger it back. It didn't even happen to me. It didn't even happen to my family. So this coldness, this politicization of the issue, calling it cancel culture when people just want to take a moment and reflect on probably the worst thing that Canada's ever done. When I say I have no time for a residential school deniers, this is what I mean. We're moving ahead. Reconciliation is going to happen. And reconciliation, the definition I use, is the one that was given by the TRC, which means a fundamental change to everything in Canada, a remaking of Canada. That's how the Truth and Reconciliation Commission defined it. And I'm not going to pause to speak to people who are distracting me and the Indigenous people who are walking in that direction and everybody else who's joining us, we shouldn't stop to speak to them because it just keeps us from walking forward. I don't think there is going back. The truth hurts. And to the limited extent that late in my adulthood, I've engaged with these issues at all. Yeah, you can't go back again. Innocence is lost. Like you can't look at your country or who you are within it the same way. And that's necessary. This should change. What you're seeing with this candidate thing is an effort to put this in a box and put the box behind us and say, okay, we can absorb this into the pre-existing story about ourselves. That's done. Nobody sees us the same after this. This is international news. You can't read hundreds of children's remains in unmarked graves and reconcile that with what you used to think of Canada. This is a brand destroyer. And it should be one. It changes everything. It changes Canada's moral authority in the world. And we're already seeing that. Our ability to to talk about humanitarian crisis in China, that's playing out politically. It changes the way I look at the Trudeau administration and that text 
from Carolyn Bennett to Jody Wilson-Raybould. I mean, like, to look at that cabinet and who was there in 2015 and who remains and the attitude that they have to this principled person, it casts that in a different light. Every federal party has to orient themselves around this. This is not a quick story. It's not over on July 2nd because we're going to keep finding more graves. You know, I hope it's not over. I was talking to a colleague of mine, and I think there's this feeling that at some point Canadians might just get used to finding the grave sites and the conversation will stop. We both kind of thought that, and then I, I'm not sure what I have to say about that. But I think so many times before when we started these conversations about residential schools or about anything, about child welfare, about any of the systems that exhibit systematic racism in this country. And, that, you know, these are not opinions. These are, are things that are proven time and time again through, you know, not just our reports, not just RCAP that was done by our people, not just TRC that was done by our people, not just the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women that was done by our people. But you can look at the parliamentary budget officer, you can look at the auditor general reports, You can look at reports that were done outside our community, and they all confirm that there's systemic racism, and the residential schools are just kind of an example of that. It's not the only system. And so as this becomes normal for Canadians, I just wonder if it's going to go the way that all the other reports go. Well, I mean, you know, if history is any indication, the answer is that skepticism is warranted. You know, we have amnesia about this. We forget about it every time. But uh, something does feel different about this. But I also feel like we forget it if we let ourselves forget it. And, you know, if I have any role in this and if I think the media as we know it in Canada has any role in this, the right role is to not let people forget about it. I think you're right. Something does feel different about this. I've had people call me up, non-Indigenous colleagues, and say, I didn't know. How did I miss it? I thought I was following everything with the TRC. How did I not hear this? I've had people calling me up and saying, what could I do? And, you know, the most I can say, like, you know, do something for the survivors. But I'm not really in a position where I'm an advocate on anything, right? Like, I don't represent anybody. I don't speak for anybody. Um, I can only speak from my experience as a journalist and what I've covered and what I've heard people say. But the reaction, just the idea that there's a conversation happening outside our community by non-Indigenous people about what can they do and should they not participate in Canada Day. It's incredible to me that that conversation's happening. So that is different. That's never happened before. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month 
at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Karen, uh, we duly note things on the show that uh, otherwise might go overlooked. What do you have? I just want to give a shout out to the Indigenous journalists who are going out and doing really heavy lifting right now, covering the communities. They're trying to find the right way to do it. I know they're pushing in newsrooms for more time, slower journalism, and they're trying to work with the communities and survivors and do all of this in a very good way. So I, I want to give a shout out to all of them, but I did really notice that Carrie Benjo over the last few days from CBC and also Priscilla Wolf and uh, Tina House from APTN have been just doing a lot of heavy lifting. So I want to give them a shout out. Duly noted. I have one I'd like to share. Listeners may remember uh, this barbecue bro, uh, Adam Skelly who kind of played the role of the blue-collar, barbecuing, all-Canadian dude uh, fighting back against the COVID cops and the international conspiracy of masking and public health initiatives. And he raised over $340,000 for his legal fight against the Doug Ford regime and the attack on his civil liberties. And what I want to duly note is that his case just got thrown out of court. Apparently, his lawyers just didn't get the paperwork right on the, uh, the jurisdictional issues. The Crown, they said that the respondents' many far-fetched grievances about vaccines, PCR testing, hydrochloroquine, stay-at-home orders, purported cost-benefit calculations, herd immunity, and the World Health Organization, among many other such topics, are superfluous to the proceeding, and the judge seemed to have agreed. Karen, basically, Adam Skelly said, I am a victim of a vast global conspiracy to rob me of my God-given rights as a free person of Canada, and the judge responded, I'm sorry, sir, this is a Wendy's. Uh, afterwards, Adam Skelly wrote on his Twitter account, welcome to China, da. <laughs> Chinada? I don't know. Duly noted. Karen, you've got something else for us? Just on a lighter note, I noticed that Rex Murphy misses Stephen Harper. And he's got a right to do that. But there's this really funny tweet from this professor who said, life is just about finding someone who looks at you the way Rex Murphy looks at Stephen Harper. I'm getting older. I don't know if I'm thinking about settling down or not, but I could one day. So I agree with that. It is all about finding someone who looks at you the way Rex Murphy looks at Stephen Harper. I think we're just putting such a disturbing image into everyone's (laughs) mind. But, um, (laughs) you know, when you first said Rex Murphy misses Stephen Harper, I heard that as Rex Murphy, the spouse of Stephen Harper, misses Stephen Harper, which actually would just as accurately summarize your duly noted. So uh, duly noted. 
Okay, I have something else to duly note. I guess I'll begin by reading some feedback from listeners. Good evening, Jesse. Just wondering if the secret public servant is coming back. Ooh. Full disclosure, I wasn't a fan. Oh. Jesse, I see that secret public servant has not written another piece for the website. Somebody somewhere has some common sense. And finally, what happened to the secret public servant? Whoever that was is the lamest person. Uh, a lot of inquiries uh, from people who didn't like our column, the secret public servant, but who still miss it and want to know where it went. And I have sad news to report. We would have kept going with this thing, despite the very strong public backlash to the anonymous, uh, anonymously written column from a senior public servant called the secret public servant. But... F, which is the code name for this anonymous uh, public servant, F decided to no longer write the column. And the reason given was uh, having to do with uh, personal issues, which I have no confirmation that there were other factors. So let's just say that it was uh, personal issues. But yes, there was a very strong public backlash. And I guess I just want to say that, you know, look, I didn't agree with opinions in the column. I, I don't think that uh, I should agree with everything that Canada Land publishes. And, and that people had some very good points to make, especially about the column about bilingualism. But there were other bits of feedback to the Secret Public Servant where people seemed to be offended that Canada Land was interested in uncovering waste and incompetence in the public service that I think people are more like comfortable or some people are more comfortable with us exposing other kinds of scandals and abuse at work and, and media scandals. But this idea that incompetence and bureaucracy and waste is more of like, those are conservative talking points. We are absolutely interested in secrets about mismanagement in government and in the public service. If we can back that stuff up and get it from a credible source, I will run that every time. But uh, it did not work out with this particular column. And uh, I want to duly note the untimely demise of the secret public servant, or as our editor, Jonathan Goldsby, put it, uh, reflecting the Poochie episode of The Simpsons, the secret public servant died on the way back to his home planet. Uh, duly noted. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Meteorologists are warning it'll be another deadly day in British Columbia. Extreme heat is suffocating Western Canada. An unusually strong ridge of high pressure bubbled up over the province on Friday, creating a heat dome. And that dome is trapping air that is hot and oppressive. The Vancouver Police Department can't keep up, responding to one death after another. Have you heard the news, Karen? That it's hot? It is 49.6, or it was 49.6 degrees. What the fuck is 49.6 degrees in Lytton, British Columbia? What is that even? What is that? Halfway to boiling. As heard on the CBC coverage of the heat, uh, the wildfire risk in BC is such that the advice from uh, forestry experts is don't even fart. This is how it's described by Daily Hive. What is the heat dome? Essentially, a heat dome is a high-pressure system circulating within a dome and continuing to cycle with no ability to escape. It's almost like a convection oven. But instead of roasting veggies, it's roasting people. Wow, this is like breaking news from hell. Like, how are we actually detailing in the language of news what is going on with the climate? It's like, oh, my blinds just melted. My SUV's window just exploded from the heat. 
yeah, I guess that's newsworthy. And I don't even know what, what, where to go with this. Like, I don't want to complain like, oh, but of course this is a climate change story. All of the news reporting that I'm reading has like buried in paragraph nine, by the way, climate change is real and that's why this is happening. But it's not like I needed to hear that. And then like, it would have been bad to not include that, but it's not like that's a revelation to me. It was the lead though in some of the US stories. And I did notice that difference is that it's sort of, put down a few paragraphs in. I noticed the exact same thing in Canadian stories, but it's not the lead. And I think there's a lot of news you can use going on, which is really helpful. I I was just texting a friend of mine who lives in Vancouver and has no air conditioning. And uh, they've put up black cardboard in their windows and you know, she and her cat are trying not to move. Fortunately, in Vancouver, where she is, the malls and stuff have been opened, which we don't have here in Toronto, so they can go and cool down, but they still have to sleep in this. So, I mean, these stories about heat stroke, heat exhaustion, what to do, what to do to keep your pets, loved ones, family alive and safe, uh, how dangerous it is for the homeless, where the cooling centers are, those are all things that need to be covered. But it, it is interesting to me that the climate change story, because it's been going on for a few days now, that there hasn't been sort of a deep dive into that. The description that you read is one that I can understand. I found like a lot of the trying to translate the science into English was kind of complicated to understand. And I just think the American press was doing a better job of it. Hmm. There's like news you can use. The city that you live in is inhospitable to life. (laughs) Here is how you might be able to endure this hellscape that we've created for you. And and then, yes, practical tips on, like, really Armageddon measures for not letting an ounce of sunlight into your home so that perhaps you can survive. And then news that is informational and educational, but not necessarily useful. Like, here is the science behind how you are getting roasted alive like a vegetable in a convection oven. I don't know what to do with that information, necessarily. There's no manual for turning the oven off. But, you know, still good to know, right? I mean, you know, never too late in life to learn something new. I guess it's not a question of pushback. It's just like, all right, so let's lead with the science of climate change But are we pretending that that's news? I think what's missing is the where do we go from here? Because these are arguably like sort of the first really big impacts that we're seeing. You know, like, I I mean, people up north of Nunavut and other places have seen this already. Like they've already seen their climate changing around them. But I remember this one in a gelder I was talking to who said, I think in the south, you guys almost see it like an improvement that your winters are getting shorter. This is the first time that it's really, I think, hitting people just how much impact it could actually have on those of us who are living in urban centers and up till now have just enjoyed, you know, maybe a benefit of uh, shorter winters and haven't been as impacted by it. So it's a good opportunity to jump into policy. And I think that's where I saw the American news going. They were talking to the president about climate change policies and opening the discussion there. And I might have missed it, but I spent some time looking yesterday knowing we were going to talk about this. And I hadn't seen that open up as much in Canada. Actually, I I just haven't seen it. You know, I don't know if it was, I guess it was six years ago now that, that we put out our tasteless book of humor about Canada, where we made the crude joke that actually secretly Canadians like climate change for these reasons. And since that book's been published, I've taken note of the 
several times that people have genuinely and earnestly actually made that argument. Shockingly to me, they hadn't read the book. Yes, it's true. Some people have not read that book. And they kind of like earnestly said like, well, you know, in Toronto, climate change don't suck. You know, it's it's uh, we're going to be able to farm land, you know, that we weren't able to farm before. And, and uh, you know, Canada is the place to be. Toronto. And of course, when they talk about Canada, they mean t- Toronto, that our climate is improving and uh, we're going to be the envy of the world. <laughs> and, and it's it, I'll tell you, even in that kind of crass, very selfish perspective, it's amazing to me that people think that we're going to have this suddenly the most high value real estate in the globe. And that's just going to be a good thing for us in this country with a huge undefended border that, like, uh, that's not going to create any problems to have a world full of climate refugees. Uh, You know, that's, like, pretty magical thinking. You know, I've been thinking about even before this happened, I was uh, climate change was sort of on my mind because of the pandemic and not because, you know, there's a brief time where we all kind of hold up and the, you know, the smog reduced temporarily. I was more thinking of it last summer where I came back to Canada and things start to open up again. And you'll remember that time, Jesse, things were like really closed, like police tape on park benches and said no sitting down and people were really compliant. You could go jogging down the middle of the street if you wanted to, because there were no cars, people weren't leaving. And then they kind of opened up things during the summer and the numbers went up and they tried to pull everybody back. And you kind of couldn't get everybody back in the house. Like nothing ever really shut down to that extent again. And of course, all the anti-mask protests were starting too, right? I started thinking about this and thinking it's the same thing. Like there's something similar about this to climate change. And I don't know if I'm prepared to fully make this argument now because I think I need to think about it. But somebody should think about it or write something about it. Because you have the pandemic deniers, you have the climate change deniers, you've got the people who will admit that it's a problem, but it's not affecting me. So I don't really want to make the sacrifice. And that's kind of like the maskers or the people who didn't want to wear a mask and saying, well, it's the older people that are going to die, just put them on an island. Remember that argument was being made and let me go about my business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's the same down south when the north has been telling us for years that they're impacted by climate change. We're saying, well, yeah, but we're kind of, it's not so bad here. And then it's the thing that you get everybody kind of on board for a bit. And then it gets really hard to keep people doing something long term even though it's probably the right thing to do, or even though you know it's the right thing to do, uh, to make those long-term sacrifices. There are some comparisons there. And I, I was talking to somebody about this, and they said, we can learn a lot from HIV. In the 80s, where they told us all that we needed to wear condoms when we were having sex with people whose history we didn't know. And nobody really wanted to wear condoms, but somehow they got people to be compliant. So maybe we should go back and look at that strategy and maybe it's a solution for climate change. As strange as that sounds. I reject completely the idea that this is about personal responsibility. It's about policy. People have been ready for a long time. Like if tomorrow the government said, look, we're putting a massive tax on leisure travel, you know, serious measures that are going to force sacrifices and a change of lifestyle on the population, we would accept that immediately. And the policies have been inadequate. You know, like, like it, it's been 
decades of this idea that if each one of us individually took it upon ourselves to be more efficient or energy conscious, uh, uh, bullshit, bullshit. It's the policy. But Karen, you know, good news because uh, by 2035, Canada is committed to all electric cars. So that I guess that should solve things. <laughs> you know, you, you probably want to end there, but I'm going to I'm going to say something else. Because I always find that you do this, Jesse. You're always so like just like so determined, so black and white. I, I think it, it must be a guy thing. I always think of things as more nuanced. So I'm going to say I think you're right. I think it is a policy thing, but I think it has to do with people also complying with policy and pushing politicians to hold their feet to the fire to make that policy in the first place. We're the ones who elect them, right? So can I say that I agree with you, but I think I'm right at the same time? I don't think I can allow it because in, in, <laughs> like that was really skillful. And the way that you agreed with me, for me to accept that consensus would be to also accept that I'm a, uh, you know, a binary black and white, simple, unnuanced thinker. And, uh, you know, I think... I think it's clear that that is just not the case. <laughs> not always. <laughs> All right, that's your shortcuts. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com, and I do read everything that you send. Karen, where can people find you? Oh, I'm, I'm back on Twitter. If you can spell my last name, you can find me. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, just click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.